good to be here, and I trust that uh, the Lord is preparing you to not only worship today, but over the next couple of weeks. It is uh, an important time, and, and I want to point you to the 24th as well, Christmas Eve. That's a great opportunity, and um, on your worship notes, I even wanted to highlight to you what I'm going to be talking about that evening on Tuesday evening. We're in a bit of a series right now, looking at Isaiah 40 is where we're at as we, we look at this Christmas promise made 700 years before the night that Jesus was born. And on December 24th, um, what I'll be doing is kind of highlighting some of the things we've talked about together here on the 24th and talking about hope in a hopeless world. So um, my, my hope and desire is that God will use that in our lives. Well, I know there's a lot of things going on in people's lives, and, and um, I do want to pray for us as a body. I want to ask you to do a few things in particular um, you know that we are moving towards being over in the Spring Mills community um, sometime this spring. If you've ridden by the church building of the last maybe week, you'll see there is a sign up front now coming soon, and we're shooting for spring of 2020, and so pray with us that that will happen. Several important meetings happening this week that deal with um, things with, with the county and so forth, and I'm just asking the body to be praying. I need to switch this off here so that it doesn't ring in the middle of my sermon. That would be embarrassing. Um, so do be praying for those things, those meetings that will be happening this week and that the Lord would use that in a significant way. Good to see Jake Anglis back there, back from Slippery Rock University. Two years down, is that right? Yeah, congratulations. So halfway through, I guess, but um, praise the Lord for Jake and him being with us today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your work. Lord, I, I pray that we could this morning be touched by really the presence of your Spirit again. Lord, that you will remind us of the hope that there is in Christ. In no other place do we find hope that lasts. So Lord, as we look in your Word now, I pray that we would be open to you, Father, that you would speak to our hearts, that our spirit would hear from your Spirit that we are children of God, Lord, that we are Yours and You are our Savior and that there is no other. And Lord, in a world that is seeking hope, I pray we would recognize that we are Your ambassadors sent into this world to bring that message of hope to those who need it. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Christmas is all about hope. If you think about what hope is, it's important for us to, to clarify what hope is and what hope isn't. Hope looks forward. It looks forward to the future. Now, we're celebrating the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ here at Christmas, and that looks back. And when you look back, probably the, the correct word for what that is would be faith. Faith is something that looks back and believes on what God has done. Hope looks forward. It looks forward to what God has promised that he will do. This is different than I hope it doesn't rain or I hope I win the lottery or, or I hope that this happens or that happens. That, that's not what, what hope really is. We defined hope together last week and, and it's up on the screen. It's a confident expectation in God's future faithfulness and presence. We know 
that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. Regardless of how things look, regardless of the, of the lay of the land, we know that God has promised us things and we are trusting in those things. Most of our hope, quite honestly, deals not with the world and the, and the life that we're in right now. Most of our hope looks forward to what God will do into eternity. But I want you to know that even in the here and now, you can hope on the presence of God, that He will be with you, that no matter what may come your way, and there will be hard times, that you can put your hope in His daily presence. I can remember as a child, Christmas seasons. Do you? I mean, we're just, I mean, it is right around the corner now, okay? And I hope you guys make those cookies that we were talking about. Um, when, when Pastor Billy said, men, you should make those cookies, I was almost offended by that. I felt like he was saying that we men don't cook. I was afraid he was going to say that. And I looked at Nancy, and I was like, oh, jokingly, you know, like, I could cook. And Nancy said, when's the last time you made a cookie? I was like, oh, yeah, that's true. I don't really remember. She said, I don't know if you've ever made cookies. So... Today would be a good day. Yes, yes. Now, hoping that you guys make a hundred dozen cookies, now that might be a decent hope that we do that. But the strength of a hope, your hope is no stronger than the one hoped in. Right? I look back on Christmas memories, and, and I can remember my parents saying this to me regularly as we would talk about Christmas, and we would look at the Sears Roebuck catalog. Now, I'm not 100 years old, okay? But, but we'd still looked at the Sears Roebuck catalog, okay? And we would circle things. You remember doing that as a child? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but you would get this, this large magazine, you can think of it that way, filled with pictures of items you could buy, and the prices would be listed there. It's kind of like Amazon in printed form, all right? And we would, as a child, you would go through that and you would circle the things that you would want. Remember doing this? Okay. And I remember my parents saying, now don't get your hopes up too high. Did your parents used to say that to you? I want to tell you about two, two quick Christmas memories about presents. Okay. Just to kind of illustrate the way that, that life kind of works. First of all, I really, really, I hoped that I would get a Commodore 64 computer. Who remembers Commodore 64? Yes. You had to plug it into the television, right? And you could do fancy things like write simple programs to add two numbers. Like you could input three and input four and press enter and it would tell you the answer was seven. <gasps> it was amazing, this computer technology. I wanted one so bad. That morning, I go out on Christmas morning and the presents are all there and we ripped into them. No Commodore 64. Oh, hopes shattered, right? I remember another year, though, we opened up all these gifts, and my last gift was a helmet. Now, I'm talking like a motorcycle helmet. I didn't have a motorcycle. And my parents said, try it on. Go ahead and put it on. And my brother and I are like, what is going on? So we put on these helmets, these cheesy, bright blue helmets with the strap underneath that went through the double buckle and back through. And we put it on and they took pictures of me and my brother in our blue helmets. And we're very confused. And I was like, so when are we going to wear these helmets? 
My mom said, well, why don't you ride your bikes? You know, we thought it'd be a little safer. Now, listen, this is back in like the early 80s. Nobody wore helmets when riding bikes. We didn't do it. And I'm thinking, oh, golly, the neighbors are going to laugh at me so much with my helmet. And then they gave us a set of goggles. And so now I'm going to be riding my bicycle with a helmet and goggles. And my parents, I guess they played this out. You know, they were prepared for this. They were like, why don't you guys go ride right now? And I'm like, oh, I'm probably like 12 years old. Okay, my brother's nine. Leave your helmet so I'm going to put on the goggles. Okay, and we walk outside to where our bikes are usually laying in a pile, you know, in the yard underneath the basketball rim. And there sat two brand new three-wheelers. Oh, man, we rode all day. Now, that was a lot of fun. Boy, they really got us good that day. They really got us good. We didn't have that hope in mind. And it was a great surprise. Listen, I want to tell you something. There are things that you and I are hoping on Christ for, and they look so great. Being in heaven, seeing people, you know, no more sorrow, no more pain. And those things sound wonderful. But I'm telling you the thing that will come through in that moment when you are out with Christ, the hope that will finally be here is you will see the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be in the presence of God. You will worship Him for real. Not, 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 the, not the little piece of worship we get here on a Sunday morning, but true worship in spirit and true worship in truth. And that will be the deliverance of a hope that you didn't even know to hope for. This is what your future involves if you're in Christ today. A confident expectation. It's no stronger than the one hoped in. And I want to challenge you with what it is that you're putting your hope in. Who or what? I shared with you last week I've been reading a, uh, in a devotional by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's called God is in the Manger, Reflections on Advent and Christmas. I enjoy reading things that Christians wrote 50, 100, 500 years ago. I know that's kind of weird, okay? But, but it's, it's, it's insightful to see what believers were writing about in different time periods. Let me, let me read to you something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in 1934. Now, if you don't know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, that's fine. Most of the American population does not. But let me tell you what happened to him. In 1943, he was arrested by the Nazis. He was a German pastor. And they arrested him because they believed he was part of a plot to kill Adolf Hitler. He may or may not have been. We don't really know. But he was arrested because, under suspicion that he was trying to assassinate. He was part of a group that was trying to assassinate Adolf Hitler. I don't want to delve into whether or not that was right or wrong, but that just gives you an idea of who this man is, was. He was arrested in 1943. He spent two years in a Nazi prison camp. He was not a Jewish man. He was a Christian pastor. And in April of 1945, do you know when the European campaign of the war ended? Soon after that. In April of 1945, he was hung by the neck until dead. This man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, arrested only as a follower of Christ, who would not bow to the, the German authorities and resisted them. But listen what he sarcastically wrote in 1934. He was arrested in 1943. In 1934, with a tinge of sarcasm, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. 
The social sciences of the day have tried to help us to see that our condition is not all that bad. The social sciences of the day have tried tried hard to help us to see that our condition is not all that bad. Nine years later, he'd be arrested by those very social scientists and the, the, the system that they were with. And two years after that, he would be dead. What are you putting your hope in today? Bonhoeffer was calling out his culture. Put your hope in Christ. Don't put it in men. Don't put it in women. Don't put it in politics. Don't put it in your money. Don't put it in your retirement, in your home, in your car, in your job, in your children, in your husband, in your wife, in your family. Don't put your hope there. Because every one of those things, if you rest your hope there, every one of those things and every one of those people will not deliver. None of them. None of them. Listen, I know you love your spouse. I know you love your kids. You might like your job, okay? You might enjoy your house. These things might be things that are special to you, but none of them can come under the weight of your hope. The weight of your hope will crush every one of those things. None of them can hold your hope. Only God can. Today, what I want to talk about is from Isaiah 40. I want to talk about the the mystery and the majesty of the incarnation. The mystery and the majesty of the incarnation. And to get there, I want you to turn. I know you're in Isaiah 40, maybe, but I want you first of all to go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I want you to see a word here as we load it with meaning today. We're going to load a word with meaning today, and it's found in 1 Timothy 3, verse number 16. I'll tell you, it's interesting to go through your Bible and read the different verses, the different passages that fall under the category of a 316. There's a lot of really good ones. Okay, it's just, a, it's just a coincidence. It doesn't really mean anything. But you know John 3.16. You might know 1 John 3.16. You ought to know 1 Timothy 3.16. It's a great Christmas passage. I, don't, I, I want to preach on this this morning, but I'm obligated not to to myself because we're going to use Isaiah 40. But there's one word here that I want you to see to, to that allow it to be filled with meaning for us. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16. It's on the screen. You might have it in your Bible right there in front of you. Listen what it says. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Mystery here is it's not the idea of a whodunit. It's not Scooby-Doo and the mystery machine. It's not a, a, a crime or a, a puzzle that has to be cracked or solved. That's not what it is. Listen to what mystery is. And I, this is why I want you to get this. A mi- when the Bible uses the word mystery, it does often in your New Testament. Five, six times it uses the word mystery. It is a truth decreed from eternity that cannot be seen on your own, but must be revealed through divine intervention. That's what a mystery is. 
is the truth decreed from eternity that you cannot see on your own. It must be revealed by divine intervention in your life. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. God with us. It's this. He was manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by angels. Proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world. And taken up in glory. Paul says, this is something that's been decreed from eternity past. That Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. God coming down and taking on flesh. Decreed from eternal past that you can never get on your own. You would never find this. You would never discover it. You can go up on a mountainside and look deep inside yourself and you will never find that God became a man. You will never find that on your own. It must be revealed by divine intervention where God brings his word and brings it alive in our hearts. That's the only way you can understand the incarnation. You sang it this morning. I wrote it down. A couple different phrases that you sang this morning. You sang, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. That's the incarnation. That's the mystery that Paul's referring to here. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. You sang Emmanuel. You might not know what that means. It literally means God with us. That's what it means. You were singing about that mystery this morning. That's the mystery of the incarnation. Now, what I want to do back now in Isaiah 40, take some time to turn back there if you have your Bible. Go to Isaiah 40. Now what I want to do is, is I, want to, I want to increase the value of the mystery. I want to store up the value of the mystery of the incarnation. Know what I mean by that. I want, your, I want the weight of that mystery to be great. I want to fill the mystery with majesty. That's what I want to do. I want, I want you to walk out of here like, I can't believe that God became a man. It's amazing. It, it's majestic. It blows my mind that God became a man. How could this be? That's what I want to see you leaving with today from Isaiah 40. All right? So let's start reading at verse number 11 and let the Word of God do its task in our lives. Isaiah 40, verse number 11. See what it says. He, referring back to the Lord God, He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Verse number 12, let's fill it. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with the span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? 
And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? A series of rhetorical questions there. Five in number in the Hebrew. Five rhetorical questions that offer no answer. As you read them, you realize at first the answer is no one, but then you correct that in your own mind and you say, no, the answer isn't no one. The answer is no one but God. No one but God. But then Isaiah continues at verse number 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And all are accounted as the dust on the scales. Remember that dust that he gathered up in a basket? The nations are like dust. Behold, he takes up the coastlines like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and cast it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering, he chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out of their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. This is the majesty. The mystery is that God became a man. The mystery that blows our mind is his personal presence in our life. Verse number 11. Let's start there. The personal presence. This is a bit of review from last week. We ended with verse 11 last week, but, but it's just too good for us to just skip past again. It addresses a question. Verse number 11 addresses a question. It's a question that every human being has ever asked, but Isaiah has a particular circumstance that he is bringing up this question regarding. You see, the nation of Israel has been taken captive, much of them by the Assyrians, and now the Babylonians are coming to take the rest of them, okay? And Isaiah knows it's going to come. An invading army is going to come and going to conquer them. They're they're rich, they have everything they want, but they've abandoned God. So God is going to bring the surrounding nations to take them into slavery. 
Oh, the social sciences of the day said things aren't that bad. But little did they know that in just a matter of years, everything they trusted in was going to be just toppled over. And so Isaiah has been telling them that for 39 chapters. He told them that. God is going to bring a wicked nation next door, a nation much more wicked than us. He's going to bring them into Israel to chasten us. God often does that. He chastens those he loves. Those he loves who abandon God, God wakes them up out of love to bring them back to himself. So in Isaiah 40, Isaiah now turns a chapter. He turns to a different kind of emphasis. The first 39 chapters has been, there is an invader coming. But in chapter 40 through 66, there is a promise of what God is going to do. It's called hope. It's hope. That that things may look rough, but there is hope. There's a confident expectation of what God is going to do. And so the first hope that, that, that Isaiah wants to answer is this question. The, the, the answer to this brings hope, and it's this. Does God even want to deliver us? Does God even want to deliver us? That's a good question, is it not? That's one that you and I need to wrestle with. Does God even want to save us? Isaiah is answering that question. When he says he would tend his flock like a shepherd, he would gather the lambs in his arms. He would carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The personal presence of God in our lives. This is what Isaiah is starting with. He's starting with the reality that God desires to be in our lives. He uses a metaphor and a simile. He says he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He's comparing in their world the the life of a shepherd to what God wants to do in our lives because he cares for us. Listen, he cares for you. I believe God knows your name. You are precious to him. If he were to count up all the ways that you were precious to him, They're innumerable. That's out of Psalm 139. His thoughts about you and I are innumerable. They're infinite. I don't know why. I don't know what he finds so attractive about human beings other than the fact that we're made in his image. But God has a care for us. He has a care for us. Yes, he wants to deliver you. He wants to deliver you from sin. He wants to save you from the bondage to Satan and death and sin. He wants to free you from that sin that you chase after. Yes, he wants to deliver you. Yes, he wants to be that shepherd in your life. We're trying to load up the mystery with majesty. And it really starts to happen at verse number 12. Let's look at this, okay? I want to show you our sovereign God. That's what we're looking at. We're hoping in our sovereign God today. And so the first thing I want you to see in verse number 12 is he is sovereign over all the earth. He is sovereign over all. You know the word sovereign, right? It's a word that you can use for a king. You can call a king sovereign. But no earthly king is truly sovereign. Because sovereign means that your will rules over all others, that nobody else's rule can supplant your own. So there's only one sovereign in all the universe. It is the Lord God. And he is sovereign over all the earth. Look at verse number 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. I want you to take your hand now. Okay, hold it up up right here. 
This little puddle in the center of your palm is the hollow of your hand. See it there? The Bible here is using a metaphor to try to show us the immensity and the majesty of God. Now, God has no hand. God is a spirit. John 4, 24, God is a spirit. Jesus Christ became a man. God, Jesus Christ has hands today. For eternity, the Lord Jesus is in the very form of a man. He has hands today. But this passage is saying that if God were a man, if you were to vision God like a man, he is so immense that he could took all the waters of the world and put them in the hollow of his hands. Now, how much water is on the earth? Scientists tell us that 75% of the earth, the, the, the surface of the earth is water. I saw in a documentary one time, a, a documentary about oceans, that said that if an alien looked at our planet, they would say it's a water world. I'm told, I don't know if this is really true, you might want to correct me afterwards, but if you took all the waters of the earth and spread them out evenly over the entire planet, it would cover the whole earth with a mile and a half of water. Not the oceans, the whole earth. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Now stretch your hand this way. From pinky to thumb is called the span of your hands and marked off the heavens with the span. When the, when the Hebrew mind heard the word heavens, it didn't think of heaven being the presence of God. The, the Hebrew mind, when it saw heavens, thought of the stars, the planets, the moon, the clouds, the air, the sky. Everything from the, from the earth all the way up as high as you could see during the night or the day is called the heavens. I read somewhere that it would take billions of light years to travel across the universe. I've never done it. I don't know if it's really true. But I read it somewhere, so it has to be true, right? But it says here that, in, that, if you mar- that God marked off the heavens with the span of his hand. Again, God has no hand. What, what the Lord is trying to do through Isaiah is to increase our understanding of the immensity and the majesty of God. And enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. All these are forms of measurement. In this dry land filled with hilled country and mountains, Isaiah says, all the dust of the earth, all the mountains, all the hills, God could weigh it. We're supposed to be overwhelmed here with, with God's character and his majesty. It doesn't, it doesn't end there. Who is verse number 13? He's sovereign over all the earth. He's also sovereign all over all knowledge. We've got to pick it up a little bit to get through this. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Not only is God sovereign over all the earth, he's sovereign over all knowledge. He's sovereign over all knowledge. So it says here in verse number 13, who has measured the, the spirit of the Lord. Here's what I think is going on. Isaiah says, okay, we're talking about measuring. We're talking about measuring the hills and the mountains and the waters and the heavens and all that kind of stuff. We'll try to measure the knowledge of the Lord. You can't do it. 
Try to measure the knowledge of the Lord. It's impossible. And who shows God counsel? See, in polytheistic worlds, you'll see this in, in superhero movies, okay? In polytheistic worlds, they believed in a pantheon of gods. And so what happened is, that in their mind, they believed that there were many, many gods, and they would all gather together, like in this big room with, you know, a round table with big chairs, and all these gods are sitting there, and they're making decisions, okay? That's, that's how, in a polytheistic world, they would often look at gods. And what, what Isaiah is saying is, he hasn't had to so- seek out counsel from anybody. God doesn't wonder or worry about what's going to happen. God's not fretting and, and, and rubbing his hands together like, oh, what's going to happen to my people, Israel? The Babylonians are coming. Oh, no. This isn't God. He's not seeking counsel from the pantheon of gods. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? No. God alone is the source of truth and justice and knowledge. See those words? Who's made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? Ever try to counsel God in your prayer? Ever try to give God the inside scoop of what's going on in your life that he doesn't really know about? I have. Oh, how foolish we are. How little we see the majesty of God. How beyond us he is. How unlike us he is in innumerable ways. There's a question that People wonder, philosophers wonder about this, and, and you may have even thought to ask it, but, but let me answer it for you anyway. Which came first, God or truth? Which came first, God or truth? Is God God because he's the one who most lives out the truth of the universe? Is he the one who's won out because he is all the things that we see is truth? Is that that what it is? Is God just the one that most aligns with the truth of the universe so we worship him? No. 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 All the truth that you and I have, it comes from God, from the character of God. Why is it wrong for you and I to lie? Because God is truth. Why is it more immorality wrong? Because God is pure. Why is truth true? Because it flows out of the character of God. God didn't seek counsel on anyone. He did not seek out knowledge from anyone or anything. God is, always has been, always will be. And his word is a reflection of that. He is not a reflection of his word. We don't worship the word. We worship God. But through his word, we can see who he is. This is what Isaiah wants us to understand. It's more than he's got the whole world in his hands. You might have sang that as a child. It's more than that. Listen, dive on in to who God is. You're not going to hit the bottom. 
dive in with reckless abandon. Go ahead. You're not going to reach the bottom of who he is. He's infinite. The angels stand around him for all of eternity. I've been spending a lot of time in Revelation 4 and 5 of late. And seeing this, this image that, that God revealed of the throne room of God. As the elders and these creatures and these angels are, are there worshiping God for all of eternity. And one of the things that's striking is, why are they worshiping? Why are they worshiping? Because he made all of this. Because he made us. Because he rules over it. It's the majesty of God. There's none like him in all the universe. There's none like him next in all of history. Let's keep going, okay? Go to verse number 15. There's a bit of a change here, okay? There's a bit of a change at verse number 15. Let's read it, see if you can see it. Verse number 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are, are, they are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor all its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are all accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Now, one of the things that happens here in verses verse 15, that is a little different in verses 12 through 14, is, is Isaiah, he's moved away from the rhetorical questions now. He's not asking questions. He's just asserting truth. He's just saying, this is true. And what I want us to see here is that so, God is sovereign over all the peoples, over all the peoples. Now, in our world today, in the United States of America, we are very, very fixated on nations and on politics and on leaders. And, and right now in the news media, you turn on the television or the radio or you click on the Internet, and it is all about how important these people are, how important the nations are, how important politics are, how important our president is, how important the House of Representatives is, how important the senators are. Oh, they're so important, they're so important, they're so important. What's God say? Like a drop in a bucket. Had a leak at my house one time. Real slow though. God says all those, those nations, take a bucket, put it underneath that faucet, just let it drip. That's all they are. It's a little bit of an annoyance, right? I got to get around to fixing that thing. One of, these days, one of these days I'm going to fix that, but right now I'm going to watch the game, right? That's how important that drop is. Look what he says, how inconsequential these important people are. Inconsequential. Like a drop from a bucket. Remember that dust that he measured? Remember that? Back, Isaiah already referenced it. It measures all the dust that are accounted as dust on the scales. How much, how much, you throw a piece of dust on your scale tomorrow morning when you climb on that thing and see how it affects your weight. Not a bit, right? Doesn't make a bit of difference. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. 
Then in verse number 16, let me just give you a word of explanation here as we're seeing God is sovereign over all the peoples. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. Lebanon is a region north of Israel. It's very fertile, and it would, be, it would just be covered with trees. By the way, many of those trees were torn down 700 years later as the Romans used them to crucify tens of thousands of Jewish people. But in this day, covered with trees. And Israel says, all those would not be enough, nor all the beasts enough. If we were going to make an offering to, to the Lord, it's not enough to show him how awesome he is. And then he goes back now to the nations. Verse 17. Now this word nation, let me say a word about this. This word nations, it is most often used to describe people who are outside of the covenant people of God. Usually in the Old Testament where it's used, it is used for people who are outside of the covenant people of God. So he says, all the nations are nothing before him. The world leaders, the world powers, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Medo-Persians, all these, these groups that would rise up through this region and they would have kings that would come forth. Cyrus the Great, he would be, all people would worship him and he's nothing, God is saying. I flick him off like dust. Counted by him as less than nothing. So it would take nothing and a little bit less. And that's how God regards the people. Now, we need to understand something here. We, we need to bring balance to this. There's a bit of hyperbolic, let's see, hyperbolic speak. Couldn't get that out for a minute. And what I mean by that is there's an exaggeration going on. There's an exaggeration to make a point. I want to be careful here. The nations matter to God. Nations matter. People matter to God. Right? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go to all nations. We quote this at the end of every single service. So God is not saying that people don't matter to him. What he's saying is, in a hyperbolic way, that it, when you consider the, the, the sovereignty of nations, the, the sovereignty of powers, they're like dust to God. In verse number 18, he says, I, I literally like verses 18 through 20. These get almost humorous, okay? Verse number 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? What we're going to see is that God is sovereign over all gods, with a little g. He's sovereign over all gods. And in that culture, if you mention gods with a little g, you're talking about idols. So look what he says about it. It's humorous. An idol? Exclamation point. Like, really? Seriously? An idol? He says this. A craftsman cast it. So this craftsman, he works. He forms this idol. And then he takes this piece of stone, or if he's a poor man, a, a, a piece of wood that won't rot, and he takes it to a goldsmith. And a goldsmith now melts down the gold and pours it over the cast image. And then in verse number 19, it says, cast it for silver chains. What this means, he puts little eyelets on the idol. Four eyelets in the four corners. Why? So we, can, so we can attach chains to it and kind of fasten it down to the ground. These guy wires off the edge of this idol. Because nothing stinks more 
than when you walk in to bow down to your idol and he's tipped over laying on the floor. Man, that really stinks when that happens, you know? Because you were counting on that idol to come through for you and he fell over. So we don't want that to happen. So we'll cast these chains on the side. This is silly, is it not? It is silly. And not just the rich man, the poor man does it as, as well. So this just isn't the, this isn't the people just trying to have, you know, beautiful decorations in their house. Look at verse 20. The guy that's too impoverished, well, what he does, he chooses wood. And then when he really gets smart, he chooses wood that won't rot. Because, man, you know, a, a knocked over idol really stinks, but a rotten idol, that's a bummer too. You know, when your idol just slowly starts to just sort of descend. It's silly. I mean, Isaiah's being funny here in his culture. I know it's not super humorous in ours, but you need to see what he's doing here. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. And that word not move, it doesn't mean that the idol doesn't move. Although it doesn't move, what it means is he fastens it to a table so it doesn't get knocked over. Keep your finger here. Just turn over because I really think this one's even funnier. Go over to Isaiah 45. Look at this one. Isaiah 45. And Isaiah 45, we got, we got this similar thing happening where, where there's this, this sort of process of building this idol. I'm sorry, it's Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. You'll notice in Isaiah 44, verse 9 through 20, the, the passage now dips into a narrative. Prior to that, it was, it was poetic literature. You can see that from the way that the margins work in your Bible. See how verses 1 through 8, like it's all different like links of text along the way. And in verse number 9, it fills up the page. It's like completely justified left and right. That's because what happens in verse number 9 is Isaiah is now telling a story. He gives us a story. Okay, it's, it's a made-up story that's done all the time. We'll jump in the middle of verse number 16. It's about a guy that's building an idol. He's making an idol. So verse number 16, he says, this tree that he cut down, he cuts down this tree. Half of it he burns in the fire. And over the half, he eats meat. So he cooks a hot dog over this fire. He roasts it and he's satisfied. Boy, that was a good hot dog, he says. And he warms himself there. Ooh, this is nice. And he turned around. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a nice warm fire. I'm warm, and I've seen the fire. Verse 17. And the rest of it, so the other half of the tree, they just warmed its backside in front of. The the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships and prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. (laughs) It's just, I mean, it's hilarious. If it just wasn't so true. Now we can, we can wag our finger and in the, the arrogance of the time of our day, look down on these ancient people who were so stupid as to bow down to a piece of wood and not see the fact that you and I do this all the time. Say, how? How? Do we not worship material things? Do we not 
work away and slave away to get things to somehow bring us happiness and say, oh, bring me happiness, oh, job. Oh, bring me happiness, oh, child. Oh, bring me happiness, sports team. Oh, bring me happiness, hobby or, or landscaping or, or garden or automobile that I'm refurbishing or whatever it is. We do the same thing. We do the exact same thing. And this is, this is not for us so much a message today about not bowing down to idols, but we got to recognize when we do this, here's why I wanted to focus on this so much. When we bow down to things like this, what we're doing is robbing our own hearts from the majesty of God. That's why it's such a sin. That's why it's such a front to the character of God. We are robbing God. It's like we're taking a knife and poking a hole in the majesty of God. The majesty of God is all swollen up above us. It is filled now with the meaning of Isaiah 40. But when I bow down to other things, and they don't deliver, they don't come through. That team doesn't win. That education doesn't work. The child breaks your heart. The wife leaves you. Whatever it is, you bow down to things. They don't deliver. That you poke in a hole in the majesty of God. And what you come to a conclusion is, nothing delivers. Nothing's worth hoping in. I'll hold my hope for myself. Hope is no stronger than the one hoped in. Isaiah 42. God says, I will not share my glory with another. You and I as believers, as we choose to bow down to other things, God says, oh, no, no, no. Now you will have me as an enemy because I will not share my glory with another. He is sovereign over all gods. Verses 18 through 20. And then finally, just the last element for us today is at verse 21. Now Isaiah jumps back into his rhetorical questions, okay? It's interesting how he does this. And these rhetorical questions are not answering questions about the majesty of God. That's not what these rhetorical questions are doing. These rhetorical questions are really making this point. You know better. You know better. You know better. What what Isaiah is saying here, what Isaiah has been saying in the first 20 verses, it's not new information, this is, this is not, looks like the, none of this is new information for you. None of you are sitting there like, huh, I didn't know that there was only one God. We don't, this is not new information. Our problem is not knowledge, though. Our problem is our heart. And so Isaiah says in verse 21, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? What Isaiah is saying is, you're without excuse. You can't blame not knowing. Ignorance is not an acceptable excuse. You can try that with a police officer. He pulls you over. I didn't know it was 70 miles per hour. Yeah, right. You went by 35 signs, right? That's what Isaiah is saying here. You you have no excuse for the bowing down to idols. You have no excuse in not seeing the majesty of God. You have no excuse in not seeing the sovereign hand of God. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. It is he who sits above. And his inhabitants are like grasshoppers. 
for sake of time, we can't go there, but there's another time some people talk about grasshoppers. A little place called Kadesh Barnea. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 13. The spies go into the promised land and they come back and they're, they're supposed to come back and fill up the people with courage, but the courage say we can, the people say, we can't go against them. We can't go against the giants in that land. We are like grasshoppers compared to them. Now God says, no, no, you're all like grasshoppers. The inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers. It is he who sits above the earth. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, who makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. You might feel like this is a little bit of repetition, and it is. It is. It's repetition to make the point. Scarcely are they planted, and this is the point. Scarcely sown, better get it. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. It's important for us to understand that When he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble, why, there's nobody else left other than God. This is the majesty. Let me read to you the mystery. Luke chapter 1. You can go there quickly with me if you want to. Luke chapter 1. Now we have an angel speaking to, not Joseph, but a young little Hebrew girl. Mary was a sinner just like me. She thanked the Lord that he was her Savior in Luke chapter 1. That's important to understand. Mary doesn't intercede for us. You praying to Mary is no different than you praying to that chair. She can't intercede for you. She needed a Savior just like you. But she was an honorable young woman. And she understood much about who God is. How do I know that? Read her prayer in Luke chapter 1. Read what she wrote, what she said, what she prayed. She didn't literally write it. I made a mistake there. Luke wrote it. But she prayed it. Look what the angel said to this young girl who knew about the majesty of God. Luke 1, verse 35. And the angel answered her when she's crying out, God, how can this be? How can this be? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. You better hear majesty there. You better hear majesty. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You better hear majesty there. This is the majesty of the mystery. The mystery of the incarnation is filled with the majesty of who God is. And behold, your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, she's already conceived a son. And this is six months from her who's called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. God. That's why this Christmas season is such a big deal. We've got the mystery of the incarnation and the majesty of God coming together in a manger. God with us. Do you know him today? Have you put your trust in this God? 
Are you trusting in something else for your salvation or the rest of your life? The only one worthy of your hope is him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your truth in Isaiah 40, the majesty of who you are, the glory that is you. No other compares, Lord. There is no other. So we will lift our eyes to you up on high and we will see the one who made all things, who rules all things, and we will call out to you. Lord, let us not miss the majesty of this moment. Great indeed is the mystery, God in flesh. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.